friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 119 with Brandon Patton, a.k.a. Black Lotus from Frontalot's band, a man who has designed games, put out solar records, and he's a good homie, a father, a uh, Seattle resident. This episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larsons. As always, shout out to everyone who supported me on Patreon since the beginning. Shout out to the new ones who just signed up. Trish, Michael, Ty, Ben, and Carlos. And shout out to some of the old ones. Chewy, Alex, Stanley, and Jason. Y'all are keeping me going. I'm doing my Star Wars series. I just dropped my Return of the Jedi song. And I got my two Mandalorian tracks dropping soon. So patreon.com slash mclars. I have a special announcement. So... I started this podcast in the fall of 2018. That's almost three years ago. And um, I am working on my new record, which you can pre-order on Kickstarter. The link is on my Twitter profile. The working title was Fear of a Blockchain Planet, but I think I'm going to just call it Blockchain Planet unless I can get approval from Chuck D., um, it's a long story, but I, you know, it's a serious topic, and their record, Fear of a Black Planet, is an important hip-hop album and I don't want to make light of something historical. So I talked to some people and I thought about it and I don't think I'm going to call the record that without his permission. And um, if I can't get in touch with Chuck D, I'm just going to call the record Blockchain Planet. But the design, the art, the songs are all still going to be the same. So that's an update on that. There's about two more weeks left in the pre-order. I've been doing the Four-Eyed Horseman streams. We're doing our next one May 29th. Uh, it starts around 5 p.m. Eastern. You can pre-order tickets. We have like really cool baseball cards. But I'm taking a hiatus from the podcast. Now, I know we went from weekly to monthly. And now I'm going to take a little break as I finish the record. I'm doing my master's in uh, instructional science and technology through Cal State University Monterey Bay right now. And that's taken a lot of time. I'm going to be on the road this fall. But this podcast will resume. And I especially love when I can sit down with people like face-to-face. COVID has made it really hard because we're Zooming all day. And all my interviews this past year have been through Zoom. And um, I still love doing the podcast, but this is just a heads up that we are going to take a break for a little bit after this episode. We have a new Hatchet Chat dropping next week about the Wraith, and then in about a month, we're doing Hell's Pit, and then Hatchet Chat is going to go on to hiatus as well until ICP drops the next Joker's card in the second deck. So that's a heads up. I'm still doing the Patreon stuff, and I'll be dropping the singles You know, in the future, more stuff on Spotify, more content. And we'll keep it going, but this is a heads up. You won't see any new episodes for a little bit. But hit me up, Lars at mclars.com, if you have recommendations on who I should have on in future episodes. Because I love this. I love doing this podcast. I'm just trying to make sure I can keep it fresh and dope. And the way I do that is by sitting down face-to-face with people. Because that makes the best chemistry, the best interaction. You feel me. Nevertheless, this interview with Brandon Patton is awesome. We talk about like the heyday of the first few years of Frenelot's career, the origins of Nerdcore, a popular topic on the podcast. So here we go. This is my interview with Brandon Patton. I'm here with Black Lotus, a.k.a. Brandon Patton, and this man is a game designer, an accomplished solo musician, a road dog, a father. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon. 
So nice to be here. I, I can't believe you've done, you've already done more than a hundred of these things. It's incredible. Uh, thanks, man. You know who our fir- my first guest was? I bet you can guess. Probably MC Frontalot. Yep. Hey. <laughs> Um, he was guest one and yeah, yeah I, I was doing it every week, but now it's every month because, you know, once you have a kid, you have less, uh, constant free time. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've emerged from, uh, the pandemic and a second child, which, which, um, turns out two children is even harder than one child. Um, I hadn't gotten to play board games in like a year or something. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in my in my pre-parenting identity, I, I, I played a lot of board games. I was like a board game geek, I, and 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 Magic: The Gathering stuff. I had groups of friends I played with, so it felt weird. I mean, like both music and gaming were 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 like distant memories. So anyway, we 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 finally figured out a way to get like a quick two hours, um, and 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 played a, a board game that was popular a few years ago called Wingspan, and. Um, and then just that one gaming session, then I, then I was like, oh yeah, I have all these ideas. And it, like, it just rekindled my little game design thing. So right now I'm working on um, a card game again. Um, and, and I really should be working on it less because I have a lot of other responsibilities. I should be um, ranking higher. But I, I just can't, I get so obsessive and I just, I'm just like twiddling away on my little spreadsheets and trying to decide which mushrooms to include and stuff. It's a game about mushrooms. The, the cool thing I got to do first was there, I teamed up with a doctor who was making a game about um, infectious bacteria, hmm. um, which is funny because it, it was almost viruses. So we almost w- would have been like, hey, we, we're the people who had the card game about viruses world who's learning about <laughs> viruses. But uh, so it was about infectious bacteria and it was this um, super challenging assignment to make a game, but he was really, he really didn't want to lose any of the real world truth of how the med- medicines are actually used. And, and, yeah. and that was like a insane constraint because, because there's, there's just like this big graph of, you know, you can use this, but not this, you can use this, but not this. And it's just, it's just crazy. Um, and so that was my first game. Was a game about bacteria called Defenders of Soma, um, and it, it it actually slowly caught on until the point where we're, we're currently sold out and working on a reprint. So there's this little community of like medical nerds and microbiology nerds who love this little card game. I mean, it wasn't a huge print run, but um, but they love this card game. And oh, and I forgot to mention the whole thing is in in fantasy, high fantasy style. So so even though you have you know, Lyme disease on which is you know Borrelia burgdorferi is what they call it scientifically. It's depicted as as a monster. Oh and, wow! Wait, so Lyme disease is a, is a bacterial infection? It is. Well, it's a it's a bacterial it's a bacteria that gets inside a tick. Yeah. So that was my first game, and then 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 we started. A, he's kind of a, a relationship together, a startup together, and so I've started trying to make little educational games for medical students. So so there's been a couple others since then, but they're really only relevant if you're in med school. Um, and then I made a political satire card game, uh, which was. The, the worst timing of any project I've ever been involved in. I mean, it's, it's, it was almost like, it wasn't this bad, but do you remember when The Coup had an album 
with, with like the World Trade Center on fire. Right. And, right. and it was slated for release like the day out, like September 12th, 2001 or something like that. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that that was the worst timing ever. So I I didn't I didn't unthrown them, but it was a it was a game. Uh, I met these people from Europe who were making fun of um, parliamentary politicians in Portugal, and they were excited to you know uh, apply their game to the American market. And I I helped them like learn about American politics and how to put it all there. And then like the minute we started promoting it, the whole turn, the whole tone of the country just got insane as Trump was, was running for his first, for the first election in 2016. And, and, um, <laughs> we looked like a bunch of jerks cause we were making jokes about stuff that suddenly got really heavy and scary and dark. And, and so it was sort of like, all right, well, I mean, we were working on this in 2014, but now that, now that we're tr- here to release it, everybody is, uh, justifiably super frustrated and upset about everything and nobody has a sense of humor. So that, that game didn't do very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's like with songwriting. You know, I used to always do, I used to love to do like political songs and topical songs, but that became, people were inundated and bored of that, right? No one wanted to hear a song about why we didn't trust the president because that's all the news was. Right, and so right. it's and everything really kind of shifted. Yeah. And it's really hard to do... Um, just creatively, it, it takes a lot of work and effort to, to make something good. And, and if it's, it's, if it's contemporary, then it's only relevant for a week or two. So, right. so it's, it's almost like a bad business model to be like, I spent two months perfecting this thing that I can share for a week until people are sick and tired of it. Like, it's just, you know, you kind of want to do something a little more timeless, but that's interesting. That's um, that's why Weird Al talks about he does why he doesn't do political stuff because he's he spans so many decades, right? right? That it would not be it would not work. Yeah, now, I mean, is know? is Weird Al the guy who made fun of the panic of nineteen eighty seven? No, that's <laughs> <laughs> that. Well, this brings us to an interesting point because talking about top topicality, if that's even a word, talking about. How things come and go and um, are popular and then they fade away. Let's talk about your relationship with Damien. Yeah. And it's amazing that we're all still doing this, but I do feel like 2006 to 2009 was like this this popularity that you were a big part of and continued to be in being in the movie, being a big part of the documentary. Like, how did you meet Frontalot and what was it like being like, in a band where you're your own solo artist, but kind of your identity was wrapped up in someone else's project, even though you're close friends. That's a big question, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, even looking back on my life, you know, I, 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 I'm just, I wonder about so many things, basically the, the short version of the story is that, um, uh, we met in college and I was, um, I was devoted to trying to be a musician before Damien even really kind of started taking it seriously. Damien was going to be a, a, a web designer, a graphic designer when he graduated and, and um, went back to the Bay Area for a while. And he was, he was doing it, um, he, was, he was doing the early song fight stuff and the early um, raps that he recorded kind of for fun, you know, on the side. Um, and, uh, Years, uh, several years later, um, he had 
partly because of his uh, how good he was at at, at internet in, in those days where it was only people who were good at internet were really were really at the front line of 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 connecting and and everybody else was like you know I got this AOL CD in the mail I don't know what to do with it you know uh, and and so he was he was connecting with people who were sort of super users or or just good with technology and um and so he he quickly uh, gained a lot of friends and 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 a lot of support on the internet. And I was sort of floundering around. Uh, I tried rock music. I tried singer songwriter stuff. And I, I didn't really have any idea how to how to how to build a fan base. Um, I still don't. And and uh, and he eventually just sort of had a little bit of momentum. And I kind of I kind of was like, man, you know, it's just it's just more fun. It's it's more fun d- being a part of something that has a little bit of momentum, even if it's not my own thing, than it is doing my own thing, which feels really good during the creative part. But then when you when you go out to like share it with people, and you're like in a bar with four people, and you're just like, what is what what am I doing with my life? Which I'm sure you remember. And and the right. funny thing is, even you in front of a lot, it still occasionally have these weird shows where nobody shows up I assume because that still happens sometimes but right. but um but in the beginning it's just all that and it's it's just very it's just it's very strange to just be out there you know plugging away so I got I got excited about being a part of something that actually had some fans and I was I was I I kind of I was happy to put my stuff on hold just to have that experience you know, uh, and and what an experience it was! It was super fun. What is, was it like? Five years? Can you remember? Damien, Gabby, and I all moved to New York City within uh, around two thousand four, two thousand five, and at that point, it was like, okay, why are we in New York City? Like, like New York City is people move here to try and accomplish something, you know? Um, right. Uh, so let's let's. Let's do our best. I remember that the early shows is was when, when when Damien started trying to do little live shows, like these dinky little shows that we would we would do. Um, and maybe it helped that you know the New York City population is so big, and and you know if you if you live in the Bronx or Staten Island or you know, end of Long Island, you can still jump on a train to come to this weird MC Frontalot show. So we were able to get twenty or thirty people at some of our earliest shows. Yeah, so he started doing it then. And then, um, but he's, you know, always at night, he's, he's plugging away on his computer and he would tell us, he would tell us, he had some sort of metric for determining, he's like, sometimes he would say, you know, I think I have about this many fans. I can't remember what he would say, but I think at one point he said something like, you know, I think I have like 10,000 fans, you know, and I was just like, shut up. You know, and I, I didn't, I didn't believe him at all. And then eventually he's like, well, maybe I could, you know, do some kind of tour. And he, he, he really didn't really know and I mean, it's the classic DIY dream where he's, he didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't know how to perform. You know, that's a whole different skill set, as you know, um, than writing. And we booked that first tour. And then random chance of luck that um, uh, Gabi had been dating um, Nagin. And uh, she was getting into documentary movies. And she just got really fascinated with this whole... Um, I think she was interested in the in the community side of it, but like this this thing, it felt a little new. It felt a little different. It felt like a worthwhile topic for documentary, 
And Gabby almost messed it up for us because they actually broke up uh, slightly before our tour. <laughs> Whoops. And, I didn't uh, know that. You know? I, I, I felt like internally, I was like, don't mess this up for us, man. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they, they jumped in the van with us anyway and, and made a, a, a video. And the fact that that was our very first tour uh, also, I think, made it kind of charming because, um, you know, Sturgis had some experience and I had done a few tours. Like I, I, I had toured with this punk band for, uh, they weren't really punk, but I, I toured with this rock band and I toured with my own rock band and I had done some stuff. But, you know, nobody ever had a booking agent or anything, so it was all a little here, a little there, like, a, you know, a few times a season. It wasn't heavy touring or anything. So we were all really green. Yeah. And, um, and then, the, you know, the fact that there was this little documentarian and that, and that nobody knew if she was going to be, you know, just somebody's ex-girlfriend with a, you know, with an iPhone or what, what was going to happen, but she did a good job with it. And she, she also, um, man, to her credit, not only did she, she have good instincts, but she also reached out to people, um, which is what you should do, especially if you're making a movie for the first time to get feedback and, and, Mm. and improve it. And, um, and she really committed to it. And so, um, I think that movie was, was great. It was great for us. Yeah, and it was a um, having some really big guests that she interviewed that kind of gave the genre credibility, like Prince Paul and Weird Al and Jello, and like oh, that was cool. I like how she pulled that off. Was I've always been like, wow, you know what I mean? Yeah, and how she managed to get the interviews with them, yeah, um, and, yeah. and connect, yeah, and that was cool because it, it put it in it into <laughs> it put it into history, like. Like you know, this is a this is one of the things that happens now, and it connects to the things that happened before. That, yeah, that was really cool. And she got, I mean, she got some really big, um, big interviews there. That was great. I loved your interview in the movie too. Delete. <laughs> oh yeah, what did I say? Yeah, if you sample Mario Brothers and rap about. <laughs> yeah, it was funny, man. Thank you. I, I always, I always look back fondly at those years when I then I started touring with you guys shortly after because you guys. You know, my previous experience had been touring with like major label pop punk bands who had me as like their funny like kid rapper little brother, and they had a different attitude of entitlement or how the industry should be. And you guys had you approached it more like we're not doing this to be millionaires. We're doing this because we want to because we're friends. And all of you, especially you and Sturgis, were really real with me about stuff that I did that I got away with in other contexts, like being lazy in certain ways or, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it was good because you, I learned, I think it, it made me a better tour mate in the long run working with you guys. Cause you were all friends. You all respected each other. Damien has a way of doing things. That's very like organized and you learn to respect that. And Sturgis would always be like completely candid. Like if Whitey Cracker and I were up too late, like that, nope, you can't be loud in the hotel room. Go to the lobby. You know, stuff like that. How did you meet Sturgis? Was he, he did he go to college, you guys, or did he audition? Sturgis was, I connected to Sturgis in a weird way through the rock band that I started with my college buddy, who then mm. we broke up, um, but we had lived in Western Massachusetts. And my buddy ended up staying in Western Massachusetts and being a, a musician in that area. Um, and um, so when, you know, when we were asking around for drummers, um, it was, yeah, it was one of those just sort of word of mouth things. Um, but he was, um, 
I lived I lived in uh, uh, Amherst, Northampton area for a little while, and when I was there uh, earlier. There, at the time, there there was always like one or two drummers who kind of played with everybody, and because it was you know a small town in Western Massachusetts, it, it didn't really ever, le- it didn't really ever go anywhere. But everyone would know like, oh yeah, Lauren's like the guy. So like, if you can pay him a hundred bucks, he'll he'll be in your band, you know. And and so there would be different people. And Sturgis was sort of rising into that role right at that time, where he was like the guy that everybody called to do drum stuff in that little community. Mm. Um, and. So he did, did he move to New York or would he commute from there? He to never work lived in New York. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And he continued to live in Western Mass that whole time. And, you know, and, and also he didn't he came from a different world. I mean, he was he was he was not a computer guy and still is not a computer guy, you know. He, he and and uh <laughs> and, and um he you know, he's uh um he 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 works on cars and 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 uh, and he he has a more of a rural um, uh, vibe to him, you know, where where uh, he likes to be outdoors a lot. You know, he's outdoorsy. He mm. likes to he likes to uh, mountain bike, and he's he's you know athletic. So yeah, it's, it was it was totally different. He's, but drumming is is something you know you can't be a pasty, uncoordinated drummer like. Uh, well, I guess you can be pasty, but you can't be uncoordinated and be a drummer. <laughs> yeah, you have to like have a physical work ethic, and you you have to be coordinated, and and you have to um, have a lot of the people who become drummers are usually have like a lot of physical energy. Um, so you got to find somebody to to run the nerdcore band, you know, to to fit into the nerdcore band who has this heavy, who has this not super brainy, you know, like. Yeah, I trip when I walk kind of, you know, approach. <laughs> right. That's funny. That's so he was kind of the outsider in a way, or he was the, uh, the person you had met, you had all met the, the last, the latest, you all knew each other from college. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was essentially a hired gun. Um, yeah. we spent so many years with him that he, he became part of it, but you know, he, he also, um, um, he continued to do other things. And there was a, there was a, a moment, um, for both of us, actually, where we got better gigs, <laughs> you know, like we kind of got called up to do something a little bit more high end with better pay and better lodging. Um, but yeah. it just didn't last very long, you know, but we, we both have our stories. Like he toured with this um, singer songwriter guy called Martin Sexton, who was mm. who was basically headlining folk festivals. Um, and uh, he had this super, uh, he had this voice like, he just had an incredible voice and he he was sort of a Van Morrison-y kind of uh, guy. And um, so Sturgis was his drummer for one tour and they, they had a bus and they had to hotel rooms and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, I connected with James Bourne for a tour in, in uh, the UK. That was fun because he had, he had a, a fan base that was a little different than the guy that Front of Lot had. I mean, he was an actual... Uh, had been a teen idol for a little while, and uh, yeah. in the UK, nobody really knows him in the US, as far as I can tell. But um, in the UK, he's quite famous, and um, and I also got to sub for uh, Jonathan Colton when he was opening for They Might Be Giants, which which was just a, a short term thing because um, his bass players couldn't do that particular run. But it was super fun for me because They Might Be Giants and and. A real tour bus and actually we didn't have a real tour bus in that but we did get ho- our own hotel rooms which was really uh really nice <laughs> that's amazing um 
Yeah, because like those tours we did, we were we would all sneak into the hotel room, be like six of us. You know what I mean? Like I remember the tour, the two thousand eight tour was so the drives were so long. The, the the tour where we had the accident, where you had you were back in New York, I think. But that tour was just like grueling man and so i could see from going from that to like a, a cushy gig it might be like uh i don't know if i don't know if this is at the top of my priority list even though you love damien well uh, well also i i mean i really like touring even though it's often very physically uncomfortable it's hard to eat well and you you know you yeah. cramp up because you're sitting so so much during the day and then you're you're jumping around on stage without adequate stretching but the um but i i always <laughs> loved it because for me, it would put me in a very present state of mind, which was um, emotionally very um, freeing. Because I wasn't, when I was on tour, I wasn't worrying about, um, I wasn't worrying about the future. And I guess that's something I do a lot. I mean, I have, you know, your inner voices, you're like, you know, why am I doing this? This isn't, um, uh, you know, I should be, uh, should I go back to school? I don't know. Uh, you know, just all of the voices in your head or, or even just like long-term projects or obsessing over music or whatever you're making or relationships or I would just be, you know, kind of into the drive, just hanging out. I would, I would do stuff. Yeah. I would bring stuff with me to do that was like really low priority, you know, that was cause, cause that, cause I was free to do whatever I wanted. I was on tour. Like I would have a little computer project that was like a silly little side pro. I can't even remember what I would do, but I would, I would learn like, remember I, I learned how to use this flow chart program once. I was just like, oh, I want to learn how to use that. And the, uh, you know, it just, it didn't matter. Um, yeah, it was all organized around those shows and it kind of took all, all the energy you had to do it. And the rest of the time, you were just hanging out um, with good people, and that's why, like, man, touring with people you don't get along with is a, is is a real nightmare. But if you, if you're with your friends, it's just a blast. Yeah, that's a great distinction. If you like the people, it's great, and if it's um, and the other thing is if you're playing to people, I feel like the, the even the hard shows were outweighed by there were some great shows, at least the shows I was w with you guys, and I wonder, Brandon. If it maybe you felt more of that freedom because being a player in a friend's band didn't mean all the marketing and branding was on your shoulders. You kind of could just roll with it. No, you you're know? right. I mean, I think you and, and Damien have a lot more to be anxious about. Um, you know, there's there's financial implications to everything that happens. There's there's you know, I've I'm at this level. I want to get to this level. Like there's there's striving. There's there's um, interviews. There you're the face of the band. Yeah. So the whole thing about being a sideman was fun. And, you know, I guess looking back is one of the things that made it hard for me to get more, um, you know, uh, uh, to get more attention for my own stuff was that I, I, I was, I was pretty bad at that side of it. Like representing, like uh, being an interesting person that, that people want to talk about when you're not around, <laughs> you know, I just made, yeah. I just made stuff and wasn't really sure how to share with anybody. So, yeah. So I think that, that, that relaxation that I experienced probably is not what Damien experienced at all. Cause he's, he's all like, Oh man, this oh, today costs a thousand dollars. And uh, you know, all that stuff that goes to your brain. If you're like a small, small business owner, or if, if there's, I mean, we, you, we read bad reviews and he would take it really hard. He's like, they, they hated it. And you know, but, 
for me, it was, yeah, the stakes were low. The rewards were, were um, easy to come by. So yeah, being a sideman, that's one of the perks. One of the downsides is though, as, as the thing starts to take off, I, I'm not, I don't have any, you know, uh, I, I don't get any of the like, like uh, financial rewards for what happens. And, and so there's, there's no um, longevity to it. And so you end up being like, it's five years later and that was really fun. And I don't have a career <laughs> or, or, a, or a job really, you know? So, so you have that, that you're like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I was sitting there being in the present tense for five years. So yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then there were, weren't there a few tours where you opened with your solo project? Right. So that was one of my attempts to merge the two. I, yeah. I was like, okay, so I have, I have a, <laughs> all I have to do is ask and I can get an opening slot for this fan group. But I was like, this, this group of fans doesn't want to listen to, you know, Radiohead inspired layered textural rock music about my feelings, you know, which is what I tended to be making at that time. Like I love breakup songs, you know? And, and so I was like, man, that would never work. Also, I can't recreate that stuff by myself. I can't bring like a six-person band, you know, into these right. little half-hour opening slots. So I, I pivoted, and I tried to embrace a little bit more of my comedic side and be like a guy with acoustic guitar who did occasionally funny songs and sing-alongs and stuff. Um, and uh, and I had at the same time I had another project with. Um, a guy named Prince Gomolvillis, who's a playwright, and we would perform in in uh, at at this place called the Impact Theater in Berkeley. Um, and so I, I tried, I took, I took a shot at doing sort of like funny acoustic stuff, you know, like Flight of the Concords kind of stuff for a while. Um, but uh, and I mean, you know about you know you and Front a lot have a lot of humor in your music, and so you you know you know about. Um, you know, there's there's a there's 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 a different side to that kind of writing where you know you want the jokes to land and you know if, if figure out the timing of it and 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 how not to um uh just how to be funny it's it's hard it's a hard there's no obvious formula for how to be funny right yeah and with and we started this interview talking about topicality i mean with nerd culture that stuff i feel like it constantly is changing so you could talk about star wars or or like old star trek but like new games and stuff that's hard you know that's hard to not feel like you're pandering so did you do this stuff so when you did that tour were you doing the stuff from like underhill downs and how i uh, and should confusion and everything or was that was that new stuff that was more more silly was i recall i i had like an eight or nine song set and I would do like one or two of my um, songs that I thought were, were good enough that I could do just on acoustic guitar. Um, and then the rest of them were more just like f- f- fun. Man, I, I, I mean, I can't remember the exact lineup. But, but, but of course, I think I, you know, once I started doing it, I would get more audience reaction to something that was more interactive with the audience. So, yeah. so there was sort of, it sort of disincentivized me to do like a tender little song where people would just be quiet and, and then I would do the next song. Whereas, you know, if I could do something that grosses people out or if I could do something that was like, I did a Pogues cover and everyone would shout along on the chorus and, and that was just more audience engagement. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the Show Confusion 
and Underhill Downs records ended up just feeling a little bit like for a different audience than the nerdcore mm-hmm. audience. And so I just kind of, uh, uh, I ended, you know, it, I ended up being like the warm up act. <laughs> right. It, it worked in part because people knew that you play, you played on those songs and that you were friends with Damien. So they're like, Oh, this is tangential to something I like. Like as a, if you, if he had nothing to do with, with the headliner, it maybe would have been even harder sell. Do you think? Sure, sure. I, I, presumably, and I, I had my tie on, you know, when when I would perform. Um, you know, I, I never know. I guess I never know in the in a front of that audience how many people there are aware of the band or even pay attention to the band. Um, but uh, presumably, that gave me at least the um, a little bit of legitimacy to be there, as opposed to like you're saying when you did those rock those punk rock shows. I mean, certain number of the audience must have been like, "Who's this guy?" Why? Yeah. Why is he here? <laughs> right. Yeah, especially then, like two thousand five, two thousand four, where it was not common for hip hop and other genres to kind of cross pollinate like that, right? So it was an interesting time, man. Um, do you? Okay, so you, what was the last tour you did with them? And and Gabi stopped touring before you did, right? He he stopped. Yeah, I, yeah. if I recall correctly, Gabi just did a few tours with us, and. So everyone's having a different internal experience. Like I'm blissed out on this like present tense, low anxiety, you know, tour experience. Um, yeah. And Gabi is not enjoying it at all. Like Gabi, Gabi is a really light sleeper, so he's probably sleep deprived the whole time. He doesn't party, so like he, he, he's just like waiting to get back to the hotel room to unsuccessfully go back to sleep every night. Oh. Um, you know, and. Yeah, it's hard. And then at some point he realized, wait a minute, my my dream, my journey is being interrupted by the MC Frontalot experience. And he reclaimed his own path. Um, and I kind of hung on a little longer because it was fun. I was having a good time. The, the thing that changed was I moved out of New York in mm-hmm. 2009. So when I left New York, um, then it was... It was, I mean, I was only two hours away. I moved to New Haven, but the, uh, that was the beginning of a little more distance from, from the project. It was a little more effort to come in and rehearse for something. I think I spent another three or four years mostly doing um, the lucrative, like one-off things where you go to like PAX or, or uh, a convention like playing in Defcon at in Las Vegas every year. I did that for many years. That was really fun. I think that's when Weezer's bass player started getting more involved in in playing the bass parts for more steady gigs or more local gigs. How do you? How did you and your wife meet? And if there's anything you don't want to talk about, we don't have to. No, this is a great story. I, I assume I've told you this story before, but you may have forgotten. Uh, we met on an airplane, and I was. Um, Flying out to Minnesota, where I grew up, to go to the wedding of uh, an old um, family friend, and I was wearing my tux because I didn't have a garment bag, so I was just like, oh, "I'll just wear this on the airplane." Yeah. So I was just a guy in a tux, um, and I was watching a, um, I was watching a, a movie about Kurt Cobain or something like that. So I was a guy in a tux watching a movie about Kurt Cobain on an airplane to Minnesota, and she was next to me reading some New Yorker article about hangovers. And she was flying to Montana to meet with her dad for some kind of vacation thing. And um, 
the last hour of the flight, we struck up a conversation because I was like peeking at her. I said, like, oh, I read that New Yorker article. It's really interesting. And we, we just started chatting. And, um, and, you know, the usual small talk sort of turned into, you know, what do you, what do, you do? And sh- she told me that she was uh, a scientist. And I started asking her um, about her field. And I realized I knew nothing. Like I knew almost nothing about what she, what she knew about. Which sometimes is kind of scary because you feel like you're, you kind of want to, oh yeah, like this, or like I read this, but it's just like, right. what is a protein? You know, like I, I, I just had no idea. But she, um, it turns out that she was kind of frustrated because she had a lot of friends and especially family who were a little intimidated and never asked her questions about her work because they didn't like feeling dumb. And I, was, I, just, I just launched right in there. I was like, all right, this might be a dumb question, but blah, blah, blah. And, and, and so we had this really great conversation and she was kind of like, she pulled out napkins and she was like drawing on napkins and everything. And then all of a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden the plane was empty and everyone else had gotten off and we we're like, Oh, Oh wow. Oh, we're here. So, okay, bye. And then we, and then, then, then that was it. It was over. And so then I went to this wedding and I was with my mom at the wedding. She was my date. And, uh, and it's, it's weird to go to a wedding like this love and love and lovey, love, love. But, but I'm just sitting there, you know, with my mom drinking wine. And I just was like, oh, that girl on the airplane, she was so cool. Yeah. I don't even know. I mean, I remember her name. I know, I know where she's a grad student, but I, that would be stalkery, right? To like hunt her down. Like, what, what would I do? Like, try to find her mail, her departmental mailbox? Like, I don't even know how to find her again. So. I just figured it was a it was a single serving encounter, and then on the way home we were on the exact same flight and we met waiting for the airplane on the way back home. Oh my gosh! And that wow yeah, and so that time because I had kind of like been thinking about her, so then I was a little more like you have to give me your email, but I was just I was like I don't want to lose track of you. Yeah, um, that's amazing. So wait, so she was why was she flying to? Minnesota, if she was going to Montana, did it she have a, like a layover? Yeah, it was a, it was a hub. It was a layover. Yeah, because there's That's no so random. Direct, there was no direct flight to whatever Eastern Montana from New York or something. What, so that was what year? That would have been 2008. That was the same year of the car crash. You know, all my musician friends were just cut off from their plans, um, and certainly the the working musicians like like. Uh, you know, like Sturgis or or Frontot's current drummer, um, or any anybody who's like the whole sideman experience. Like nobody has any money saved. Like they they just they're just kind of scrambling to hustle up yeah. gigs all the time. Um, and then when you don't have gigs, you usually do some sort of low wage job, like work in a restaurant. So <laughs> you're like, oh, I can't tour. I better. Oh, I can't work in a restaurant. Like it's just like. So yeah. Um, um, a lot of people uh, just f- were really financially um, crushed by by um, not having that. Um, I was already had already turned into sort of a homemaker. Like like the beginning of the pandemic, we had a baby that I was taking care of while my wife was working, and I was the I was the stay at home dad for several months. Mm. So you know that it didn't change our. It did not change our trajectory at all. Actually, on that on that regard, I was going to stay home and take care of the kid until I could go to until she could go to school. But yeah, so you so that's interesting. Um, 
So I asked you like a year ago or something, I was listening to your music. I was like, Brandon, do you think you'll make another record? And you said something interesting. You said you didn't know if you would, you might not. Has that changed during this time? Do you feel like you want to make music again or? I have not. I have not felt like I want to make music again. Um, and honestly, um, I mean, I think I'll write, I'll write some little songs, you know, on, on acoustic guitar. Sure. No problem. Um, and I also, well, I will, I will be, I, I've connected with a, an old, um, an old friend, a very old friend here. Um, and so we're going to start playing music together, but I don't know if I'll make an album again. And the, the reason is that, um, the way that I was able to make albums required a, a, a level of commitment and slight insanity that I don't think is possible in my family life. <laughs> and, I, you know, I don't want yeah. to yeah. lay that on anybody. You know, I don't want to lay that on them. It's like, you won't let me make a record. But, it, but it, it, I, it's just like, you know, staying up all night or like the... I, I can't quite get the uh, I can't quite get the euphoria I, and the delusion of grandeur I want if I'm just like oh I get to work on this between ten and eleven every more you know every day every weekday you know like that yeah. that's I mean and I think if I had more if I needed it more then I would just find a way to make that work it's like well this is the only way I can do it so I'm going to make this work but instead I'm kind of like man I just don't want to make music that way so I just haven't been. Is that liberating to to not have that the onus of that whole old way of doing things? No, I think it's sad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, but you know it, it it's a it's that kind of creative output was was uh, was um, part of a life. The it was was it was hand in hand with a kind of lifestyle. So. I, I if I right. if I return to music, it has to it has to work within my you know my middle aged lifestyle somehow. Yeah, and it has to feel new in a way, right? I like feel like it's interesting and and when you I've noticed that too, Brandon. Like, but pre family music was definitely the center of my life, right? Everything I did was what? How can this be a song? How can I promote it? Now it's like something I do for escape and fun, and it's going to be interesting when we are planning the tour this fall how that feels being away from everyone and um you know like whether that will feel like an escape or like being in an old pattern or if that will feel like a distraction like we talked about from being with my family which is like now the center of my world and so i feel that shift too and i don't feel the same drive to make a rec spend a year making a record but if it's fun i'll do it so it's i feel liberated realizing that which is why i wanted to bring that up yeah you know? it's gonna it's gonna have layers to it i mean there's definitely the escapism is still there like and, you know I, I i'm so excited to see what people have done during the pandemic because because there's a lot of people who who don't have tons of responsibilities who are stuck at home with only their creativity and i think that there's going to yeah. be this dump of finished work over the next two years, which is going to be really fun to sift through to see what everybody else did. But, yeah. but um, you know, those of us with 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 kids were just sort of uh, you know uh, figured out how to how, how to get through the the world of no babysitters. Um, yeah, there's layer. There's going to be layers to that. Um, and and yeah, everybody everybody's going to have to figure that out. I mean, I I think that 
that also could be really cool that you are like there's a purity for, for instance here here's here's one thing i um so i've lived in a lot of places and 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 you you've moved around too and there's an old joke that um in LA people are uh in San Francisco people are smart and LA people are ambitious and in New York people are both which is obviously like right. a, a New York centric <laughs> uh you know uh superiority thing but um one of the things that I that there's truth in that for me is is that in, in the Northwest I meet all these people who have a creative output that they're hugely committed to and they're not ambitious about, and it's like it's 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 for personal enrichment. It's not it's not something that they want to make a career out of exactly. I mean, I'm, they might have a little bit of dream. Oh, that would be great if I, you know, could do this for a living. But they're they're not really like orienting themselves in that way, and and sometimes it means it's a little amateurish. But sometimes it means it has this purity to it because it's it's non mm-hmm. it's non commercial. It's not really adapting to a, an audience or a potential audience. It's just like, why'd you do this? Because I like doing this. You're like, and that's end of story. You know, it's it, and it's not. Yeah. It's not like, oh, we have to cut that song because this the crowd is not feeling it. Like, is there's no practicality to it. It's it. It's yeah. just people expressing themselves. And then in 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 New York or L.A. sometimes you can be like. Um, People might look at you funny. You like you did this without any kind of ambition. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, they, they're like, why are you here? Like, aren't you trying to yeah. make it or something? So, like, so, yeah. So there's 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 nice levels to that. So I think maybe later in life, those of us who got maybe went a little bit too deep down the rabbit hole with this, like, you know, I want to be like. I don't know how you feel. This is a good question for you. I don't know how you feel about this, but we used to talk on tour and you wanted Nerdcore to be like huge and you wanted your creativity to reach so many people. You were so ambitious. You're like, I just, you know, I just love this music so much and I, I want it to take, I want it to be like the dominant force in the universe, you know? And, and I would kind of laugh. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know that this music is compatible with true mainstream global uh you know uh needs for entertainment but yeah you know i think as young people we that seems so exciting to be to be a rock star or to or to have just any kind of enterprise and have it pick up steam and have it have a following and and grow but now that you can have this more kind of thing like you know what is it like to have like that that group that you play jazz with on Sundays or something, you know, like I don't know. It, it's there's different motivations. I think in some ways, though, how hip hop and nerd culture have come together have become a defining thing. It's just been by younger people or savvy people in a different way. It's not called nerdcore, but it has those elements that were there in the genesis, right, of the fusion of it. Yeah, and and, um, and the reason I hitched to the the front a lot thing and kind of neglected my own thing was was because I really value the way that music that the community forms around music. And so so I I have I have less of this sort of like, you know, Ayn Rand, you know, you know, me against the world, like genius artist thing. It's more it's more about these little temporary communities that that form around something nebulous and and, and and bring people together and have their little dramas and then and then and then it kind of fades away and 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 that's that's just beautiful to me. So the fact that there was the fact that there was some relevance to some people and you know people would get their tattoos of, of of our stuff on them or people would talk about 
it just being meaningful, you know, to, to somebody that was great. And, and it, and it's magical. And, um, it doesn't matter really how, how big it is. In fact, the bigger it is, usually the less meaningful it is. I mean, there's, there's a, there's, you know, there, there's, yeah. that, there's that sweet spot where something is getting bigger, but is still special and small and is small enough to be a community. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, some of that was that I, 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 I don't want to be a part of amazon.com a global you know blah blah like i want to be a part of a small scene so i i actually didn't want nerdcore to get too big because the the, the things that i valued were already happening so i was more worried worried yeah. about like do you remember that woodstock was it the 20th or the 30th there's some anniversary woodstock show that they tried to do and water was like five dollars a bottle and everyone started yeah, woodstock 99 yeah, riding and stuff it, yeah. it was like yeah man you don't want to you don't want to go that that way with it. <laughs> yeah. What where do you think like I'm impressed that it's continued and that people still come to see us and that it's survived Nerdcore. Did you expect that that like now 15 years after this people would still pay to come see it? I don't know. I I mean I didn't really I didn't really expect anything, but I do know yeah. that n- nerds are are more nostalgic. Then, so so, hipsters tend to stop liking things when too many other people like them. Also, it doesn't happen with nerds. Right. Like nerds, and 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 in fact, one of the maybe one of the flaws of a lot of nerds is that they're they're resistant to new stuff sometimes because they're so attached to the stuff they liked when they were young. So I think that's that's just a random chance that that the world we move in is full of extremely nostalgic people who are extremely loyal. So I think yeah, it's going to be right. fine. But if we had been in like, you know, I don't know, like some, some high fashion international jet set thing, they would have dropped us like yesterday's garbage, you know, like the minute we were, it wasn't yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damien said something to me in Columbus on, when we did one of our tours with Schaefer, Megaran, and me, and we were amazed at how many people came that we got on the first show. And Damien said, I said, why is this? And we were packing a merch. He's like, because it was never cool. It never had the chance to be uncool. Yeah, which is kind of what you that's said. That's nice. Yeah, I used to do a similar thing, which was I would do Wikipedia songs. And I, I would like find some Wikipedia page I thought was really interesting. I was like, I'm going to turn this into a song. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I never told you this, but I tried to. That's tight. I tried to create an event at Joe's Pub. I didn't get very far because I didn't, I did, I couldn't reach the the main people who had the power to make something happen. But I pitched an event that was all about songs about literature. And it was going to be like, that's it was like, and MC Lars is going to be there, you know, with his, his Moby Dick references and his Edgar Allan Poe and, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, the magnetic fields should, should do some stuff. And I, I just, I just yeah. thought of, there's, um, um, you know, at the time I think, uh, uh, I don't know, I had a list, I, I, I had a list of like cool indie rock bands who had songs about, about books, um. We should we should get Sting to show up and do Moon Over Bourbon Street. It'll all be songs about books. But <laughs> the story I want to tell now is that my kid is happy and has someone f- has structure, and that's more powerful than any song could be. And it's funny how the dad brain upgrades changes what 
what is creatively fulfilling and me yeah. seeing him like crawl yeah. around and you know what I mean? You, you probably relate to that. And that's actually freeing because then it doesn't become sad that, oh, I don't have time to do this full time. It becomes, it gives me perspective. And I love that, you know, made me relate to that. And it's so, I mean, it's so fun to, to, to role model for young children, you know, how to be creative and expressive and, and have ideas. I, my, my four-year-old has this term, I guess she picked up from me, you know, and um, yeah, I'll come in and I'll say, what are you doing? She's like, it's one of my projects. <laughs> That's cool. I know you have a great website and I know people listening will want to check on it. Um, let's shout out where people can like follow your projects as they come out in the future. Yeah, uh, well, I, I still uh, have uh, www.brandonpatton.com and uh, there are some old music links up there. I do these little medical games for a company called Nerdcore Medical. We actually put the word Nerdcore into our, our business there. So um, you can check out uh, some of those things, although a lot of them are sold out right now, but they'll, they'll be back. Basically, the albums I feel proudest of that have... That have, that have that continue to to be like I'm 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 not ashamed of that. Were were those sort of indie rock, moody records I made called Should Confusion and Underhill Downs, and those are the ones that I, I put a lot of um, obsessive you know hard work into. And those are the those are those are the two records I still feel really good about from an artistic point of view. And then if if you're interested in any of the sort of funnier silly stuff, there's. Uh, an album called How I Allegedly Bit a Man in Gloucestershire, which is based on a, a true story of when I was drunk at a rock concert. And whenever we're in the same location, like if you tour through Seattle, uh, well, actually, I'm thinking if you tour to Seattle, you probably won't have your family with you. But at some point, your kid and my youngest will be very close in age. So they, they can hang out together. And they can, they can trade VR memes with each other in the future. They have the same frame of reference for how the world was disrupted and reunited and how friendship is great. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna, I want to end. I like to end with jams, and I want to end with Caught Off Guard, if you don't mind. Sure. Because I love that jam. So let's go out with that. Um, Brandon, this has been tight. I appreciate you making time. Thanks. That's joyful. Okay, here we go. Here we go.
the point in running me through tests And I doubt you would like it if the tables turn We've caught sight of some possible happiness You're not the only one who could get Incredible song, incredible man. Thank you, Brandon. Really great talking to you. And uh, keep in touch at MC Lars on Twitter, at MC underscore Lars on Instagram. If you haven't heard the 100 plus old episodes, they're on SoundCloud, they're on Stitcher, they're on Apple Podcasts, they're on Spotify. So go back and listen if you miss me and uh, I'll be back. So keep subscribed to this RSS feed and uh, we got more flavor coming soon. I love you all. Thank you so much. Peace.